I find if you can take people just outside their comfort zone and you can keep them in that space of discomfort, that's often where insight and novelty emerges. Hello, and welcome to On The Edge, a podcast about making unexpected connections everywhere and anywhere. My name is Roland Harwood, and in each episode, I speak with someone who's making sense of our increasingly connected world. In this conversation, I connected with Sonia Blichnot. Originally a meteorologist, Sonia now partners with people who need to navigate and lead in uncertainty. She spans the boundaries of leadership, organizational development, strategy, risk, innovation, and marketing, or anywhere where there is complexity, which nowadays is more or less everywhere. Sonia is internationally recognized as an expert on complexity, the Kinevin framework, ways finding, and complexity fitness, and is trained in numerous systemic coaching methods and a sought-after speaker, including at TEDx. In this conversation, we talked about crossing thresholds, inspired by a great blog post that she shared recently, and that I'll link to in the show notes. That blog post, which I urge you to read, starts with the following quote from John O'Donoghue. At any time, you can ask yourself, at what threshold am I now standing? At this time in my life, what am I leaving? Where am I about to enter? What is preventing me from crossing my next threshold? And what gift would enable me to do it? So Sonia and I discussed these words and what it means for us, and what new skills, capabilities, rituals, and mindsets are required to navigate transitions well. So I started out by asking her, at what threshold are you now standing, and how does it make you feel? Enjoy! I find myself suddenly at multiple thresholds, and I think one of the things that I've I've always kind of preached, but I'm really experiencing the the lived reality is that our lives are not linear and they don't unfold in linear ways. And so I um I just turned fifty, so that's quite a significant threshold, you know. In in a, it, I don't know if you should see it as the second half of your life if you're optimistic, if you think you're going to live, you know, long. But you know, for especially for women, you know, there's um all kind of life transitions that come with that age that. I feel I need to prepare for, you know, I'm also kind of in the midst of transitioning between roles. And yes, I I find, you know, even even things like COVID-19, you know, there's it there seem to be multiple um, you know, thresholds that we're crossing sometimes, you know, taking one step in one direction and then having to take another step back, you know, as we navigate the various waves. It almost feels a bit like my my life is one big threshold at the moment. I don't know if mm. if if that resonates with you at all. Oh, well, it resonates massively and i think it resonates with lots of people that i talk to maybe maybe it's a self-select example i'm not sure that i'm drawn to other people <laughs> who are also in this liminal state this kind of uh, facing a threshold but i think it's the, the sign of the times in some ways you know this i feel like these periods of transitions are getting longer and the periods of stability that 
used to sit between them reassuring me are getting shorter and shorter i don't i don't know if you agree with that but yeah so how 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 does it feel to be at a threshold um how how are you experiencing it i guess it depends on the threshold you know so some you know it's, it's it was really interesting to reflect on it you know and and it was i've been thinking about it for a while and then when i came across this john o'donoghue quote you know it kind of just sparked new thinking and you know so some thresholds it's interesting if it's a threshold that I kind of, that I choose, you know, so when you choose to go into self-employment or, you know, something that we're considering now is moving out of the city and making a life closer to the sea, which, you know, I, I love the sea. Things like that, it's kind of equally, um, I guess, a little bit anxiety provoking, but then also exciting. You know, it feels, I love this. Um, what he also says is, is that it's um, a threshold takes you into a new frontier, you know, so it does feel like, you know, very exploratory and it's quite exciting. And, you know, so some of what I'm experiencing is that. And then others are just, you know, it's just part of life. Potentially um, approaching menopause, nothing I can do about it. It's not really something I would choose, but, you know, it's it's natural, it's life. And then there are others that feels like um, you're being dragged over the threshold. And those... I can't really say I'm I'm enjoying, you know, so it it I find myself compartmentalizing a lot. I I know that I need to be aware. I know that I need to notice them, but I feel like I can't pay equal attention to all of them because then it just becomes so overwhelming. And so it, it's it's almost like I'm feeling everything at once. Yeah. And that can be quite tiring. Definitely, definitely. You used the phrase in your blog post, I don't know if it's your words or you were quoting somebody else, but to sit with the fire. Um, I was just wondering if you could say a bit more about what you mean by that. Yeah, so I think I, I first came across that notion of sitting in the fire. I think it's Arnold Mandel's work. And why it came up for me in this context is, you know, I think sometimes something else that I came across, it's a quote, I don't know whose it is, but they talk about honoring the space between not anymore and not yet. <laughs> and I feel sometimes, especially if we're busy and we're not paying attention, or if we go into an anxiety response, you know, almost as a defense against being in this liminal space, we don't honor that space. And it can feel like sitting in the fire. You know, sometimes it's not pleasant to not know to not have clarity, to be in that ambiguity, but I feel that's where a lot of the growth happens. And so I've been I've been trying to um, be more mindful in these spaces and to sit in the question. You know, I think that's the one of the things that I. It's not necessarily in this John O'Donoghue quote, but many of the poets that I love, you know, they they really talk. I think David White, for example, talks about the beautiful question. So I've been trying to challenge myself to sit in the question and to sit in the not knowing, to sit in the fire for longer and not to just jump to an answer or a seemingly easy solution or just that kind of compartment where I can choose to ignore these feelings. No, I like that. And I remember the last time and only time we spoke, I think about a year ago, you said something that really stayed with me. And I think it, it relates to to sitting with the fire, namely that sometimes in the work that you do and you actively try and encourage other people to sit with uncertainty for longer than feels comfortable. I can't quite remember the words you use, but that was kind of the idea and sort of delay making a sort of comforting decision. So I, I thought that was 
cruel but kind of you know very wise and so yeah can you can you tell us a bit more about perhaps how you do that some of the responses you've had and what impact that results in yeah it can sound quite um easy when you say it but when you're actually in it you know then you you realize how uncomfortable it is but you know one of the um i think it's diego espinosa one of his quotes really resonated with me and he said we have outsourced our relationship with uncertainty to certainty merchants and that kind of i think that was one of the things that prompted you know what i spoke to you about in our in our last conversation because i think a lot of the world's problems come from people who are unable to tolerate discomfort and uncertainty we fall very easily for certainty merchants or for people who promise certainty or we opt out of the processes that might actually take us forward so most of the time how this plays out practically is you know mostly in in workshop contexts or um you know in in one-on-one thinking partnering relationships and it's people react in different ways you know sometimes people get Sometimes extreme emotions come to the fore. You know, people can get quite angry if you refuse to provide the certainty that they're looking for. And it's it's fascinating how um, how deep that goes. You know, we we had a client the other day, and they said to us, "You need to give us a very detailed agenda. We want to know exactly what we'll be talking about when, and we want to know exactly when the tea breaks will be. Otherwise, people will not show up." And so for me, it's always a bit of a dance between. How do I meet people where they are and how can I create structure that's more of a scaffold than a a rigid fixed structure that provides the certainty that they're craving? Because I find if you can take people just outside their comfort zone and you can keep them in that space of discomfort, that's often where insight and novelty emerges. So it's it's not easy um as a as a facilitator I think sometimes you get a lot of projections onto you like you don't know what you're doing you're not in you know you're not in control of the group so it's 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 a difficult place to um to be what's that um you know the wisdom that you gain in your life is down to the number of difficult conversations you're willing to have or, or something like that are you familiar with that I'd I'd agree and disagree because you know well maybe it's a way of, sometimes it's a bit of an interpretation but I wonder sometimes if if the hard conversations that we're avoiding the most are the ones with ourselves <laughs> I'm speaking um of myself as well you know so I'm just not not only speaking of everybody else out there but you know I when I'm presented with all of these different thresholds and all of these potentially difficult conversations or trans- transitions, I find myself drawn more to continuous busyness and distraction. It's um, you know, it's almost like we start avoiding being mindful, being alone, being silent, and we just fill our lives with busy work with. Even you know, just binge watching things on Netflix, or, and I think it's it's a it's a conversation with ourselves that we're avoiding. I can relate to that on so many <laughs> different levels. Curious. Another thing in your blog post that I I really liked was around rituals, and I'd love to explore that with you a bit a bit deeper. If I can just share one example, which I discovered this week um, in the. The documentary about Navalny, the Russian politician that was poisoned. I discovered a Russian tradition, a Russian ritual in Russian society. Apparently, it's very common: is before a long journey 
to sit before traveling, both the people who are traveling and the people who are seeing them off in silence. And I, I checked this with a Russian friend and he said, yes, he used to do that all the time with his mother and his grandmother. And I just thought that, and you see it quite meaningfully in this documentary because uh, ultimately Navalny goes back to Russia and is put in prison and he knows something bad is going to happen and he's sitting with his family in silence, just less than 60 seconds, but it's a ritual, uh, but it's a very important ritual in the context of that story. And then I read your blog post. So I was just thinking about these rituals that we've lost, you know, because many of us, myself included, don't go to church or have other things in our lives where we perhaps recognize some of these thresholds and transitions. I've always known, I guess, intellectually of the importance of ritual. They've always kind of been a way of punctuating or a way of witnessing not only the key crossing of thresholds, but, you know, key events in in our lives. But I think it really hit home for many of us when suddenly our old rituals were no longer accessible to us. Thinking about the COVID, you know, about the pandemic times, you know, so many people who lost loved ones and they couldn't be with them when they died. They couldn't have the kind of, of funeral or the, the you know, the, the kind of ritual that they would normally, the death r- r- ritual of whatever their culture or spiritual practices are. They, they couldn't have those. And now it's almost like they're sitting without that sense of closure, without that sense of having said goodbye. And even just those coming-of-age r- r- rituals that marks the transition from child to young adult, for example. All of those things have fallen away, even silly little things like being able to blow out the candles on your birthday cake. (laughs) Now, if somebody tries to blow on a cake, we all have like a complete, you know, like an allergic reaction. You know, it's, um, you almost can't imagine a world where people blew on on, on your food before you ate it, you know, before this pandemic. So there are all of these things, you know, even, you know, if I take it to the world of work, our tiny kind of rituals that helped us make the transition from work from home identity into work identity you know whether it was your commute or buying a coffee and a croissant at at a particular place or you know all of those things suddenly just disappeared and it feels as if our lives I wonder you know you you mentioned earlier that it feels like you know these liminal spaces have just become longer and longer and I I wonder if part of that sense doesn't have to do with the loss of our rituals and routines, because now it feels as if time just flows into each other. You know, it's um, it's no longer punctuated. I'm just curious why that is. Do you, oh yeah, do you have any thoughts on how we've ended up in this state? Part of me thinks it's, you know, we're so distracted. Our attention is so grabbed by, you know, our smartphones and everything else um, that we lose perspective. We're just always in this long now I think there are multiple reasons, you know, I think some was just because of the context, you know, so we weren't allowed to come together. We, you know, so some of it was, I think others, you know, you can't really blame the pandemic for, you know, I I think our Western culture have abandoned many of the, um, of the key rituals that I think still exist in, in, you know, other, you know, indigenous cultures or, you know, even, um, you know, like Middle Eastern cultures, it's much more they're much more filled with ritual. I think even the Celtic tra- tra- traditions. 
but it's it's as if we've abandoned those in in many of our let's call it modern societies to our det- detriment so i do think it it has to do with with busyness i think sometimes it also has to do with um we've become too sophisticated for those things but i i do think that they're important i think it's calling us back to aspects of our humanity that that we've lost and i think we need to make time for those because I can't remember where I read it, but it's um it's an interesting notion that our, our brains need structure. And you can provide that structure almost through a sense of control and um, you know, linearity and everything that we know exists in the almost mechanistic society, or you can provide that sense of structure through rituals that connect us to others, that punctuate time, that you know, and I, I think it's a much more healthier way to think about bringing structure. Than some of the others. I just had an idea, and it might be a terrible idea, but let me share it, and you can tell me if you think it's a good idea or not. But you shared earlier that you just turned fifty, and this was a threshold for you. And I'm 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 forty eight, so I'm not far behind. And I remember vividly about five years ago, a friend of mine who's about five years older than me, so he was probably about forty eight then, and I was about forty three. It was very obvious to me in a conversation that we had that we were in very different places in our life. So he said, at some point in your life you stop counting up and you start counting down. And he was saying this because he'd obviously kind of reached that transition. And I remember him telling me this, thinking, yeah, that it sort of made sense to me intellectually. But I definitely think five years ago, I was still counting up. <laughs> but I think now, partly because of the pandemic, but also partly because of age, and I'm much more aware of the time that remains. So I just wonder whether there could almost be a ritual that celebrates that transition, that midlife transition, that psychological transition. Well, I think, let me put it this way. A friend of mine asked me a question. If um, if the real value from a ritual comes from it being witnessed. Mm. So if there's no one to witness a ritual, does it still have value? And I, I don't have an answer, but I, I think the witnessing does does bring something that that's hugely valuable. But I'm I'm thinking that we're almost in a in a place where we need to create our own r- rituals that have meaning for us. And so if if counting down is something that will be meaningful for you, there's no, you know, even if if other people feel it's a terrible idea, I think you can still do it. But I I do think, you know, so my immediate response to that was sure, you know, I don't know if I want to be counting down. That feels a bit um, macabre. But on the other hand, it could be a gift because sometimes we we live our lives as if we've got all the time in the world and we don't. And I need to remind myself constantly to not keep putting things off. You know, another, I don't know if it's a ritual really, but another transition that I've been really um, watching with interest is the notion of retirement, because that has shifted tremendously in the last decades. You know, if I think about how my parents lived their lives, they saved almost their entire life and put all kinds of things on hold, you know, like going overseas or whatever the case might be for one day when they retire. And there are still some people, I think, that has that way of looking at it. But more and more, you know, I'm, I'm seeing people who they just keep working. They, um, and I'm challenging myself, you know, like how much of my own life am I putting off until someday when I can finally, you know, not work as hard and, you know, all of, all of the things that come with, with being younger and pr- more productive. And should I not be spending some of that money and spending some of the time and doing some of those things now? 
And maybe counting down is a way of, of reminding yourself that you're not going to be here forever and to do the things and to say the things that matter now. We've touched upon COVID and you talked about the impact on children. I, I do have children, three children. The, the hardest thing for me in the pandemic has just been sort of making sure that they're okay and, you know, hopefully mentally and physically okay and also getting a bit of education along the way. A friend of mine who's also a parent, similar age children, or uh, shared the other day that she found a photo from the first lockdown, so from two years ago, and how much bigger her children are now than in that photo. And it just sort of hit her what a big chunk of their lives, their young lives, the pandemic represents, you know, compared with people who are parents or, or, or not parents, but older, where, you know, we can maybe put certain activities and rituals down for a couple of years and, and then pick them up where we left off um, without too much disruption. But for our children, they've just missed a huge chunk of their development. And now... Do they play catch up and just try and compress that two or three years into the next two or three months? That's probably not the best way of doing it, but that is one way of doing it. Or is that just gone forever? And and so yeah, it's um yeah, I was struck as a parent, but also just as uh, by by what you were saying in your post about the conversations that you've been having about the impact that COVID has had on people in particular on children. One of my friends has a a, a child who basically just coming into pu puberty, you know, so that transition from being a child, playing with your friends in a particular way, and then becoming a young adult, you know, who's suddenly, you know, you don't want to play like that anymore. And and these last two years, they, um, they were never really allowed to go out and play. They didn't have that social. And I don't know if that is something that you can ever get back. It needs to be acknowledged in some way and almost mourned. You know, it's almost like, you know, we, we know that we need to mourn the loss of certain things, but then others we just allow to pass us by. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm extremely concerned by statistics coming out of um, suicide rates amongst children. And I, I wonder how much this has to do with that. And it's, it's a complex thing. You know, I'm, I'm also wondering about teachers who need to... Uh, who need to absorb some of this complexity in their classrooms. Again, coming back to where we just started this conversation, you know, th that's only one of the various thresholds, you know, where, you know, you spoke about, you know, the climate tra transitions that, you know, things that's escalating there, there's um, war going on, you know, and if I put myself in the, in the shoes of a young person now, um, I, I, I imagine it must be very difficult to imagine a more positive future. I can probably sum it up by, you know, it, it's as if there's a need for some kind of a containment um, when it comes to, especially our young people, but I think many, many of us feel a bit uncontained, um, as if the world has suddenly become a bit of an unsafe place. What, what does containment look like to you? I think it's, um, it's a sense of being held. Probably the best way I can describe it is a friend of mine, you know, so I, um, one of the communities I'm quite interested in is, is the system psychodynamic community. And so this idea of containment is, is a term that they use, um, you know, in many of their theories, but a friend of mine used this analogy to explain it, you know, and he said, you know, when a, when a child is really young, a baby, and you want them to feel safe, you swaddle them. 
in blankets. You know, you wrap them really tightly. And he says very often what happens is is the, that loss of containment almost feels like somebody just ripping that blanket off. And all of a sudden that baby's limbs just go everywhere. And in that moment, it feels very unsafe. Um, and so I, I think one of the, especially from a leadership perspective, I think one of the main um, responsibilities nowadays of a leader is to bring some kind of containment. You can't promise certainty. You can't um, you know, control everything, but I think you can provide that sense of being held. Partly that's why many people are gravitating towards um, populist leaders because of the certainty and, you know, they, they provide a particular kind of containment that I think is resonating with people at, at the moment because when things are very uncertain, sometimes it can be very comforting to have somebody that tells you exactly where the boundaries are and exactly what to do and who's right and who's wrong and who's in and who's out. You know, that becomes a, a kind of leadership that people gravitate towards. And so I think providing another kind of containment, a, a container where um, people can feel safe. You know, in, in the corporate world, there's this whole um, uh, discourse at the moment. Well, it's been going on for a while around psychological safety. And I think psychological safety to a large extent emerges when there is some form of safe container. There's, you know, a the question in my mind is how can, rather than looking to populist leaders to create some completely arbitrary and false containment, I would, I would argue, but how can we sort of hold each other somehow? Um, I don't know what the answer to that is, but I was um, having a conversation with a, with a friend and a colleague um, just the other day, sort of debriefing on a project that we've just finished. And I, in my slightly annoyingly British self-deprecating way, sort of said, and I don't really mean this, but I said, well, I didn't really do anything. And I was trying to be complimentary of the team saying, well, you did the research and you know, she did the project management and, and he did, uh, uh, you know, all this great, um, you know, design work. And, and I, you know, I was a, pa a bit of a passenger on the project. My friend, my colleague, very nicely and very correctly, I think, said, well, well you held the space because I was kind of facilitating the check-ins and making sure everyone was included. And, you know, that was my role, something that a role that I know I sometimes play. And but I do think it's an important role. And I'm sure you do that as well. And through your work as well, I can see that. That it's, it's, it's definitely um, an important role. And, and this is also where I think coming, you know, circling back a little bit, rituals, boundaries, those kinds of things can also create containment, you know, something that's really interesting that I've, I've noticed. So, in in the system psychodynamic world, you know, I don't know how, if you're familiar with Tavistock. I am. My wife, my wife has a degree from there, so yes, I do know. Uh, that, yeah. Okay, one of the things that I've noticed there and that I've been observing with interest is, for for example, there are certain boundaries. If you if you go to one of their events, their um, group in, in any of their group events, actually, for example, the time boundary is held sacrosanct. You know, so if they say. This goes from nine until 10. At 10, doesn't matter what is happening, what kind of conversation is going on in the room, the consultant gets up and walks out. It, it, they just, that boundary is held. You know, the first time I experienced that, it was actually quite disconcerting to see. But then after a while, what you start seeing is because that boundary is so strongly held, it creates a form of containment, a form of safety, where, you'll, where you start seeing people will open up the really, really tough conversations 
just before that boundary because they know it can't get out of hand because that boundary is held so so tightly. And I think there's something that we can learn about that because we tend to, in other meetings, just let these boundaries fizzle out. We don't hold them. And so looking at the role of ritual, the role of boundaries, something else that we've been exploring is the notion of curation. Like how do you, as a facilitator or as a leader, how do you curate spaces and contexts where a certain atmosphere or um, certain emergent properties are more likely to occur? So if you want things to be safe or you want people to experience some lightness, how do you create spaces where, you know, almost just by being in the space, people feel a different atmosphere? I heard about that sort of strict adherence to time boundaries at the, at the Tavistock through my wife's studies there as well. And I can see how powerful that is. But it also feels a bit dogmatic to me. Mm. So I, I use timers a lot in workshop, to, you know, when people are presenting or when there's a kind of group discussion. So people know we've got 20 minutes left, you've got three minutes left for the same reason. But also use a little bit of judgment that, you know, they're saying something really interesting. So let's give them 30 seconds just to finish their point. Or, and, you know, you need to, so just a little bit of fuzziness um, uh, as well as, quite a lot of containment i don't know so it just seems a, a little bit dogmatic the way i understand it happens but i don't know if you agree with that how do you handle that containment in the workshops that you run or, or the work that you do that very as you say dogmatic way of holding the boundary is quite particular to um to that context i i haven't applied it as rigidly when I, you know, plan workshops or, or hold things, but I have seen it as, let me put it this way. I've, it's, it's made me more aware of the importance of boundaries and how if we do, you know, even if we co-create an agenda or we co-create the boundaries for a, for a workshop, if you just allow um, the group to run roughshod over those boundaries, the container no longer holds and it becomes unsafe. So it's it's a uh, it is as you say. You know sometimes it can be a bit more fuzzy sometimes, but it's it's I, I think it's just noticing the boundaries and the and the dynamics that play out around them and being aware of what happens. You know, come, circling back to parenting and children, I think the same is is true there. If you set boundaries but you don't hold them, then all of a sudden things become un uncontained and it feels less safe. So. I don't think it's about dogmatically holding them necessarily, but I do think we tend to just um, almost forget about holding those boundaries. You know, we, we think it's okay to just go 10 or 15 minutes over time. And sometimes it is, and sometimes it isn't. And it's about noticing the dynamics playing out around the boundary. Have you read, just out of interest, a very old book or about a 40-year-old book called Transitions by William and Susan Bridges? Have you, have you come across that? I have. That's, that's where he makes a distinction between change and transition, I think. I think so. The, th the thing that I was going to draw upon, I think it's quite an old-fashioned book in, in many of its kind of social attitudes. I think it was written in the late 70s, early 80s. And it's very American because they're an American couple who wrote it. But but I actually think it's really a helpful book. It's got this really simple three-stage model of transitions, which I think are something like every transition starts with an ending, you know, something coming to an end, either voluntarily or unexpectedly, as you said earlier. And then there's the middle bit, which I think they call the neutral zone 
but I, I think that's completely the wrong term because there's nothing neutral about sitting with the fire as you described it earlier i think that's the really that's where the growth happens the learning happens that the, the interesting but the difficult stuff is and then i think he calls it new beginnings or they call it new beginnings um the emergence of a new a new more stable reality and i just i don't know why that was so helpful to me but it just it just hadn't occurred to me especially that the you know, every transition begins with you know saying saying goodbye or recognizing you know the the ending of something that that just felt very important and something that until I read that book um, I'd never I guess been consciously aware of. So um, curious if you have any reflections on that little model and, and uh, as well and any thoughts on on that. I've come across it, you know, and I, I um what you just said reminded me um, because I, I read it long ago. And I, I think there's definitely some truth and some wisdom in that. Because sometimes I think we don't mourn what has ended. We just kind of, you know, progress into the new. But then I, I think they, it, it's not quite as linear as that. You know, what you just said reminded me of, um, I never know exactly how to say his name, but, you know, um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who just died, he wrote... Um, do not say that I'll depart tomorrow because even today I still arrive. And I think there's there's also some aspect here of being in a continual becoming or being in a flow of time, you know, that um, some things don't ever really come to an end. You know, so some, sometimes I think you do have the, there's an ending, there's the middle part, there's a beginning. And then sometimes I, I, I think it doesn't quite end. I mean, I'll, I'll, and one of the examples, I think one of the reasons why, for example, this whole return to the office thing is so difficult is because we don't have a punctuated ending. I've, I've been reflecting on why it's so hard. You know, a client of mine said the other day, when, when the pandemic just started, it took three days yeah. for us to transition our entire workforce to work from home. Everybody just sorted it out. You know, there were, you know, they, they weren't any there weren't any policies or things in place. We just kind of treated people as adults and said, you need to figure this out. Now, coming back, it's taken months. Yeah. And they they get these missives to say, remember to bring your mouse when you come to the office. And everybody's resisting. And it's almost as if they've reverted to treating people like children. And I've been reflecting on this, you know, because in it's almost like the when the pandemic started and we moved to remote work, that was one of those transitions where, or the thresholds where we were kind of dragged across, but not by something that we could blame. And we were all in the same boat. We all had to just change overnight. Now, all of a sudden, there's no, um, there seems to be no really good reason for this. And we're not choosing it, but we're still being dragged. Mm. And there's a, there's a really interesting um interplay here and and i think some companies are getting this badly wrong because they are underestimating the threshold because i think many people their their lives you know just in in terms of your ability for example to be more of a part of your children's life um your you know some some many people have actually moved out of cities they've structured new r r rituals new habits you know, new ways of being around this new reality. And they can't just take a step back to how things used to be. And linking back to to the book that you just mentioned, I think part of the problem is that it's almost a, a manufactured ending now because there's no real need for the end, 
for many, many people of remote work, of not having to go to the office. And so now that middle bit is becoming really, really difficult. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Um, I wonder if there needs to be the abruptness of the ending needs to be somehow the lack of parity between those two things is is is, is part of the the paradox or the psychological unsafety we feel, you know. Um, and you know, in the UK, our politicians have basically said that the pandemic has ended uh, because they want to give that finality, and yet. Last time I checked the news a few days ago, 600 people had died in the UK. So it's definitely, it's definitely not ended either. And there's something about, you know, in physics, phase transitions between states of matter. Once you kind of go mm. through a tipping point or once you go to a new state of matter, it's very hard. Or once you go through a paradigm shift in civilization, it's very hard to sort of go back to the previous state. Um, you know, once we became an agricultural society and could live feed far more people by being stationary rather than hunter-gatherers. Uh, it, it was, our population was too big to go back to hunter-gatherer um, you know, methods of food production. And so we were kind of stuck with that new agricultural form of civilization um, uh, with all the pros, but also the cons that came from that. Yeah, I think we're, we're, we're going through that kind of crossing that threshold or going through that transition without, without knowing quite what that means. So we need to need to be a little bit kinder and create a bit more safety for people, you know, who are all in different stages along the way. And for some people, you know, I'll probably include myself in this. It's actually been far more benefits than disbenefits in many ways. And I'm very grateful for that, but also very conscious of my own privilege. And that that's definitely not true for many, many people as well. Maybe we can circle back to where we started to um, John O'Donoghue's poem and, you know, maybe the I can see all of this as a bit of a, a let's call it a wake up call. You know, it's mm. a, he ends his piece and he says, it is wise in your own life to be able to recognize and acknowledge the key thresholds, to take your time, to feel all the varieties of presence that accrue there, to listen inward with complete attention until you hear the inner voice calling you forward, the time has come to cross. So that's kind of where I ended up was, was almost um, seeing this as a bit of a call to not just letting my life flow by without me noticing and to really kind of focus on noticing where am I, what am I leaving behind and what am I about to enter it and how do I enter whatever comes with more presence and more intentionality, I guess. Thank you, Sonia. I particularly liked what she said about the space of not knowing is where the growth happens and the hardest conversations are the one we avoid with ourselves. I was particularly struck by what she said about the importance of rituals and transitions and the need for containment, as well as the question, how much of my own life am I putting off until someday? Perhaps the time has come to cross. If you want to find out more about Sonia, please check out the links in the episode description. This podcast was brought to you by Liminal, a collective intelligence community. We couldn't produce this podcast without the support and help of all of our members, clients, partners and patrons, so many thanks to all of you. If you'd like to find out a little bit more about us, please check out www.weareliminal.co. And if I can ask you to like and subscribe to this podcast and share it to others as well, I'd really appreciate it. Until next time, please keep on connecting people and ideas. If you do, you never know what might happen. Thank you and goodbye. Mm-hmm.